Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we hear the words of Isaiah as he says, Comfort, comfort my people. We pray that you would be our comfort in all things, whether we face travail or new challenges, hardships or joy. May we ever remember that your might and strength is our comfort in this transitory world. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning and please be seated. <clears throat> A while back when I was living in Maine, I oversaw this group of college students, and their, their job was to, to do church services um, in the local national park. And so my job was just to help them feel welcome, support them in any way that was necessary, and just help them along in a new community. One time at the end of the season, we were preparing to say goodbye, and one of the other families that helped with this task invited everybody over for dinner. And it was an interesting night because, because that night was the night before a hurricane was intended to hit us. Now, I was going to say it wasn't like in Florida or North Carolina, but we have somebody visiting who moved here from Alabama and somebody going to Alabama, so I can also say it wasn't really like a hurricane in Alabama. Um, <clears throat> hurricanes in Maine just mean more wind than normal and a lot of rain, but still it's enough to worry about. And so that night had this weird tension within it. Part of that night was this joy of fellowship with people that we became good friends with over a summer. The other part of that night, though, was this tension of uncertainty about what the next day would hold. Would it hold so much wind and rain that things would get damaged? Would it just pass over us as so many hurricanes did? We didn't know. But there was that tension and fear of what does tomorrow hold? It is to use the, the colloquialism or the, the little idiom, we waited for the other shoe to drop. We all know what that sense of kind of waiting intention feels like. We wait in tension and wonder, well, what will tomorrow hold? And this is where we pick up in the book of Isaiah this morning. This is sort of a hinge between this first section of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters or so of kind of doom and gloom. Jerusalem and Judah has watched Assyria come in and just crush the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is functionally no more by the time Isaiah writes chapter 40. And so they're wondering, what will happen tomorrow? This massive kingdom is bearing down upon us. But Isaiah starts with comfort, comfort. Comfort, comfort here is a double imperative. It's as though saying, you comfort, or perhaps if you think of the dad working on his car or something and his, his son is helping him, we all know that situation, and he says to, to son, wrench. It's not, not really a please give me a wrench. He needs the wrench right now because something's about to go wildly wrong. So he just says, wrench. Of course, wrench is a different part of speech, but it's the same idea. An imperative in scripture or in any, any writing is a command. Comfort, comfort my people. 
This drives home the coming hope for Jerusalem, but also for you and I who are heirs for the same promise that is in Christ. We hear comfort, comfort, and there is hope for us. Isaiah moves from this doom that may have come in the morning to a a hope, and he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly is literally here, speak to the heart. And it's this odd little idiom that only pops up a few times in scriptures. And most of the other times that it pops up in scriptures, it's talking about the affection of a man to a woman. The affection of a man comforting a woman. And we can picture that in our head if we close our eyes for just a moment. That of a strong man wrapping his arms around a woman who is crying and saying, it's going to be okay. Or that of a a father wrapping his child in his arms and saying, it's okay, young one. And that's what we should picture when we picture what God is doing here. In his strength, he humbles himself and he wraps Jerusalem in his arms tenderly. But the comfort is made clear. It's twofold. The war ends and iniquity is pardoned. It's interesting the order, but what's more important is the is what hap- what caused the warfare was Israel's disobedience. Israel's sin caused judgment by the hand of Assyria. And so the iniquity, the sin of Ju- Jerusalem has to be addressed first. And then warfare can end. And the iniquity is wiped clear so that they are pardoned so that they are not judged. The same thing happens with us if we do not deal with the inner issue. Another issue will simply pop up. If we do not deal with what causes our anger, what is causing our marital disunity, what is causing whatever the major trouble that we face in our life, if we do not address the inner issue, then how can we possibly expect healing? But when God addresses those inner issues, when God pardons our sin, it means that we can have peace not only with God, but with each other. When God pardons your sins, when God heals your sins, you can have peace with one another, and more importantly, peace with God. As we read this passage, we realize that there seems to be about three voices acting out here. And we come to verse 3 and we hear, a voice cries. This is much like saying, listen, someone is calling out to you. It is to say, him who has ears, let him hear. It is though you're walking through the woods and you hear a sudden scream and you close your eyes and you listen. And you realize either it's somebody who needs help and you go running to try and help them or you realize the party ahead of you has several kids and they're just having too much fun. (laughs) But it says stop, listen, attend to what is being said. Life with Christ, life as a Christian is not merely an ideology. It is not merely an idea that we hold on to. It is something that we live, and it is something that affects all of our senses. 
we hear these words, a voice cries, and we know, it says, listen. And we realize that listening is part of our Christian life. It is good to sit down and read scripture day in and day out. But we also must listen. And this is a part of our worship. A part of when we gather together, you may notice that when, I, when we read word, the word, I sometimes sit and close my eyes. I actually hope you don't notice because you're doing the same thing. But we stop when we hear the word read by our lay readers and by myself. We stop and we listen. And that attends to a different part of our brain and affects us in a separate way. And, and the reformers knew this so much that they put it in the second colic for Advent. We pray not only to read scripture, but we pray to listen to it well as well, because this is how God has designed you, that you would stop, that you would read, that you would mark, and that you would listen. Listen to the voice that cries out in scripture, that cries out to comfort you. And the voice today this morning cries to Jerusalem, a voice and the voice cries to us. It says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And of course, we read the follow-up on that in the beginning of John's gospel, as well as the other gospel accounts, that this refers to Christ. John the Baptist prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, prepares the way for the coming of Christ. John the Baptist came to do this for Christ, and the Spirit comes into our hearts to do it for us. On a personal level, we have mountains of sins and troubles, but the Holy Spirit makes straight the path for the Lord to enter our hearts, whether we be a believer for a long time or hearing the gospel preached for the first time today. The Holy Spirit prepares our hearts that Christ may come into it. And the reason he did, does this, and the reason John the Baptist did this 2,000 years ago was to reveal the glory of the Lord. Not just in an isolated little place in, in the Middle East, but in the whole world. God prepares our hearts so that our neighbors might see the Lord's glory. God prepares the hearts of Christians around the world so that the world knows the glory of the Lord. And this is why we come Sunday in, out, Sunday in and out. This is why we hear the word proclaimed. This is why we pray to the Lord that he would prepare our hearts. And this is why we come to the Lord's table, that we might taste a foretaste of that coming glory. You may hear this day of evil in the world. You may hear of trouble in your life or the lives of your neighbors. But you have hope. You have hope because you know that the Lord has come into your heart, that the Lord has come into this world, and that the Lord will come again. And now the second voice cries. It cries like the first voice. It says, listen, listen. But it speaks of the frailty 
of flesh. All flesh shall fade and shall die away. You may have beauty now. You may have riches now. You may have worldly comforts now. But all those will fade. Today, after church, we'll participate in that wonderful Anglican tradition of the greening of the church. And I say this because I know from experience, you all will make the church look beautiful. I've seen you do it year in and year out. But even that will fade with time. We've already had to replace the ribbons because they went from this beautiful, vibrant red to this awful, weird orange color. At some point, we will have to replace our Christmas tree. We will have to replace our ribbons. We will have to replace the decorations. The beauty of this world fades. But the hope comes in this part. Because although the grasses fade and the flowers fade, the word of God will stand forever. Think about it. This 2,000, 3,000-year-old book or more is still authoritative in our life. It still encourages us. It still strengthens us. It still teaches us about who the Lord is. Trees die. Grass fades. We will go to meet our maker. But the word has standed the test of time, and it will stand on. Be comforted. By that. And as we read all of this, it's impossible not to think of, of the Sermon on the Mount, how Christ also compares the, his disciples to the flowers of the field. But he pushes it beyond this, past our frailty, to the fact that the Lord does provide. The Lord does provide and comforts us in all things. Comfort, comfort. Because God's word is stronger than you. It ends with a heralding of good news. What is that good news? It is, behold your God. Of course, if we think to what this applied to as Christ came into the world, there's this element of as he comes, an element of behold your God. But for us today who don't have the privilege of walking with the Lord, we have our weekly gatherings where we participate in Holy Communion. It is in the Holy Communion, in that bread and that wine, that we can taste and see something more than ourselves. In the bread and the wine, we taste Christ. We behold Christ. We behold our God. We behold but a taste of that coming marriage feast, which is that glorious moment we look forward to. The final two verses this morning are profound because they give us two very separate images of God, and yet they're melded together because I think they wrap up this whole passage in in an important manner. The final two verses proclaim the might of God. And remind us back to his tenderness. Verse 10 reads, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his, arms rule, and his arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with you, and his recompense 
is before him. Remember the situation that Jerusalem is sitting in as Isaiah is preaching these words. They're looking north to their brothers and sisters. They're looking north to the northern kingdom, which has been wiped out by a mighty, mighty army. The northern kingdom is no more. And they're reminded, God is mightier than that mighty army. In scripture, you may have run across this term, Lord of hosts. And it's this, this interesting word that kind of evolves throughout the history of scripture. What the host starts out as actually means army. Starts out meaning the Lord of the army. In other words, the Lord or Yahweh is over the armies of the earth. They can do nothing without his permission. It may seem like Assyria or Babylon or Russia or fill in the blank has more power than we can comprehend today. But the Lord is over even them. But then we shift to verse 11. And it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Think about that. The Lord who is more mighty than the Assyrian army, that mighty army that just crushed their brothers and sisters, will now tend to them like a little flock, will gather Jerusalem in to his bosom, will give them a tender hug. He is the comfort. And part of the fact that he is a comfort, a comfort to you and to I, to Jerusalem then, to the whole church throughout all of time, is because not only is he a comfort, but he is mighty. And there is nothing that can prevail against him. He is our tender shepherd. As we wrap up, we are reminded of this simple fact, that he is mighty, that he is strong, and it may seem as though Christ has tarried for far too long. But we are reminded that he will return in glory and that we experience that glory in a part as we come to the Lord's table every week. He will return to show tender affection for you who are in Christ. He will wrap you in his arms. He will wipe away your tears from the long journey that you've had. He will comfort. He will comfort you, O people. As Christmas approaches, and as we approach this holy table this week and next week for our Christmas celebrations, let us remember that good news. Though we taste his glory in part now, one day we will taste his glory, we will see his might, and we will experience his comfort in its fullness. My dear friends, be comforted. Be comforted. For in Christ, God 
cares for you tenderly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.